For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. from San Diego Bay on the Californian coast on a peninsula tied to the mainland by a narrow strip of land lies the upmarket waterfront resort city of Coronado. The sparkling sandy beaches provide sweeping views of the glimmering North Pacific Ocean. It's no wonder the city's central beach is consistently voted the best in the United States. It provides a picturesque backdrop for activities like sailing, surfing, and kayaking, which are all enjoyed by locals and tourists alike. They're not on the golf course, or shopping till they drop, that is. Established in the late 19th century, Coronado has retained its old-world elegance and charm in the architecture and relaxed lifestyle. Central Beach, situated on the southern coastline of North Island, runs parallel to Ocean Boulevard, where a strip of multi-million dollar homes with sprawling gardens leads south to the legendary Hotel Del Coronado, the site of many a West Coast getaway for the rich and famous since 1888. The hotel was purchased by entrepreneurial magnate John Spreckles. Spreckles made his fortune building lucrative real estate, sugary refinery, and transportation empires. He was also renowned for transforming the commercial face of San Diego, aided by his ownership of the San Diego Union and Evening Tribune newspapers. Following the tragic 1906 San Francisco earthquake that killed around 3,000 people, Spreckles decided it would be somewhat safer to make San Diego his home. He commissioned the design and construction of a 27-room, 10-bedroom, 11-bathroom mansion on Ocean Boulevard, covering half an acre, less than a half a mile away from the Hotel Del Coronado. Finished in 1908, the property was palatial for its time, measuring around 6,600 square feet, cutting an impressive figure across from the beach. The mansion played a host to all manner of soirees for the wealthy and successful in San Diego society, including politicians, celebrities, and influential business people. Two years later, Spreckles gifted the mansion to his son for his wedding. In 1928, 3,000-square-foot, three-bedroom, three-bathroom guesthouse was constructed at the rear of the property, in addition to a six-car garage 
into apartments intended as caretakers' quarters. Separating the main residence and the guest house was a lush, private courtyard, complete with palm trees. A 1,000-square-foot basement, including two wine cellars, added to the now-expanded living space of 10,500 square feet. Throughout the 20th century, the property eventually passed out of the hands of the Spreckles family and was purchased by a succession of owners. But it remained the ultimate summer vacation getaway. Its prime position made the multi-million dollar property on the West Coast a sought-after home. The kind of place where only good times are to be had and happy memories created. But our story today doesn't start in California. We begin across the other side of the world, about as far from Western wealth and privilege as you can get. Now, let's get on with it. Rebecca Zahau was born on March 15, 1979, the second oldest of six children for her parents, Robert and Paris, in Fulham, in northwestern Myanmar, in Southeast Asia. The Zahaus lived in an area known as the Chin Hills, near the eastern border of India. This part of Myanmar is heavily populated by an ethnic group known as the Chin people. The Zahaus were Chin, but as the area of the country had long been influenced by European missionaries, many Chin converted to Christianity. Rebecca's family was no exception. She was raised in the Protestant faith. The Chin had a long history of being persecuted by their government. Thousands of refugees fled the country as a result, many seeking asylum in other Asian countries and places like Europe in search of a better life. When Rebecca was still a child, her family fled initially to Nepal to escape religious prosecution. It was here that the Zahao children developed a strong work ethic and special closeness. Everyone had to pitch in with daily chores, both before and after school to help the family get by, what were sometimes less than ideal living conditions. Eventually, the family managed to settle in Germany, establishing their new life in Europe. Rebecca, or Becky as she was affectionately known to her family, was funny, down-to-earth, and generous. She loved getting outdoors and working out, and excelled at artistic pursuits such as painting and writing. Her older sister Mary told the San Diego Reader, quote, We were pretty close. We talked to each other almost every day, either by text or by phone. If not every day, at least two or three times a week. We're all close. Rebecca and I got really close, because we can talk to each other. Mary explained to Obscura, that like any sisters close in age, she and Rebecca often quarreled about the usual sibling issues, like homework and who would be the first to get brand new clothes instead of hand-me-downs. But the pair were close. Rebecca was a social butterfly who thrived in group situations and made friends easily. Her outgoing nature, infectious laugh, and brilliant smile and she could always be relied upon to cheer anyone up and pull them out of a funk. In Austria in mid-2001, while attending a church camp, 22-year-old Rebecca met a 25-year-old American named Neil Nalepa. 
After a whirlwind romance, the couple became engaged after only a matter of months. Being heavily family-oriented, it was Rebecca's dream to one day become a mother. But until then, she knew she had to work hard to establish herself. In 2002, Rebecca's dream seemed to be coming true. She immigrated to the United States and she and Neil were married. The couple moved around the country quite frequently as Neil drifted from job to job. It was a somewhat nomadic existence for Rebecca, but gradually, the rest of the tight-knit Zahao family also immigrated to the United States, settling in Missouri. After multiple relocations and many job changes on Neil's part, the couple moved to Phoenix, Arizona in early 2008, where Rebecca found work as a surgical assistant for an ophthalmic surgeon. She wasn't happy in her marriage to Neil, who was by now studying nursing, but Rebecca loved her job and the difference she helped make in people's lives. Being able to afford to purchase her own home later that year was a huge achievement that brought Rebecca immense pride. In 2009, 30-year-old Rebecca met and soon became close to a client of the eye clinic where she worked. The man in question was 51-year-old Jonah Shacknai, the wealthy and extremely successful CEO of a high-profile pharmaceutical company. Even before Jonah became a high-powered CEO in the lucrative pharmaceutical sector, he was already incredibly accomplished. Growing up in New York and a qualified lawyer with a science degree, Jonah spent five years working in a key healthcare and science policy role at senior levels of the U.S. government. This included serving as the National Consul on Drugs and working as the Chief Aide to the Committee on Health Policy in the U.S. House of Representatives. In 1982, Jonah moved into practicing law. For the next six years, he worked as a senior partner at his own firm, representing manufacturers of medical devices and pharmaceutical companies, eventually making the move west to Arizona. In 1988, Jonah decided to take the plunge and use his legal and healthcare policy expertise to establish his own company. Modessus Pharmaceuticals, which manufactures cosmetic injectables, such as Dysport and Restylane, and the accolades kept coming. In 1997, Jonah was named as Arizona Entrepreneur of the Year, but he also gave back to the community by way of his philanthropic efforts serving on several boards for foundations, focusing on children and adults with disabilities and special needs, including the Southwest Autism Research Center. Rebecca and Jonah were not only attracted to each other right away, but shared common interests such as working out and maintaining a healthy lifestyle. By early 2010, Rebecca and Neil had separated after their marriage continued to deteriorate, but the couple stayed in contact. By this stage, Jonah had divorced his first wife and was on to his second marriage. He had three children, two teenagers from his first marriage, as well as his youngest child, Max, with his second wife, Dina. By the time Rebecca met Jonah, he and Dina were separated, with the San Diego Union-Tribune reporting that, during 2008, there were several allegations of domestic abuse between Jonah and Dina as their marriage unraveled. Rebecca started dating Jonah, and the romance blossomed. 
despite being in the midst of divorce negotiations with Tina, wasn't long before Jonah introduced Rebecca to four-year-old Max, who loved Dr. Seuss stories. But Max's true passion was soccer. He began chasing a ball at the age of only 22 months, went on to be the youngest player in his local league. Rebecca doted on Max, with Jonah later telling 2020, quote, Rebecca was completely full of life. She was a very enthusiastic person. I had enormous admiration for her. Max loved Rebecca. She was extremely attentive and warm. She was a great influence on Max. They had their own love story. Rebecca began visiting her new beau's summer vacation home, the spectacular Spreckles Mansion in Coronado, which Jonah had purchased in 2007 for $12.7 million. It was just over an hour's flight time from Phoenix, where Jonah lived the rest of the time in his home in Paradise Valley. Like any blended family, where a new partner is introduced, it was reported that there was tension between Rebecca and Jonah's teenage daughter. This seemed to intensify after Rebecca started moving some of her belongings into Jonah's home. Rebecca also had to contend with conflict between herself and Dina, who wasn't said to be overly thrilled about Rebecca being on the scene, with Jonah himself later telling 2020 that Dina made things difficult for his new girlfriend. This was only complicated when Dina discovered that Rebecca had been arrested for shoplifting in mid-2009. Dina was less than impressed. At the time of the arrest, Rebecca pled guilty to a misdemeanor and paid a $500 fine after being caught stealing $1,000 worth of jewelry from a Macy's department store in Phoenix. Naturally wary, Dina later told Phoenix Magazine that she stipulated that Max was not to be left in Rebecca's sole supervision, that Rebecca was not to attend any of Max's school functions or take him across state lines. Rebecca agreed to Dina's conditions, and her relationship with Jonah became more serious. In 2010, Rebecca and her Weimar on her dog, named Ocean, moved in with Jonah. Rebecca rented out her property in Arizona, and also quit her job to focus on being supportive presence for Jonah and Max. Rebecca's divorce from her ex-husband was finalized in February 2011, Everything appeared to be going well. She had always wanted to be a mother. Now she had the opportunity to develop her relationships with Jonah's children by being available to spend more quality time with them. Coronado also provided the perfect setting for Rebecca to spend time outside working out, as well as being able to retreat to a quiet spot to paint. The spacious mansion had more than enough space for Rebecca to use one of the upstairs bedrooms to store her painting supplies, laptop, and other personal belongings. This bedroom also contained Jonah's PC, along with a desk, chair, and bookcase. French doors opened out onto the room's small balcony, which looked out onto a charming view of the manicured courtyard below. In the summer of 2011, the Spreckles Mansion was a hive of family activity. Jonah's three children, including Max, were visiting, the blended family, including Dina, gathered in Coronado on June 7th to celebrate Max's sixth birthday. The previous tension that had been evident between Dina and Rebecca appeared to have eased, 
everyone was in high spirits. The following month, Rebecca's 13-year-old sister, Zena, flew in from Missouri on July 10th to spend a few weeks of quality time with Rebecca on the West Coast. On the morning of July 11th, the household was busy. Jonah left early to drop his two older children at the airport to catch their flight home, then headed to the gym for a workout. Rebecca and Zena stayed at the house along with Max, whom Rebecca was supervising. Max had been playing around inside on his Razor scooter, but wasn't said to be a daredevil like many kids his age. Aside from climbing trees and occasionally playing soccer in the halls of the Coronado Mansion with Jonah, he wasn't a risk-taker. Zena went to take a bath in the part of the house where she was staying. At the same time, Rebecca was washing her hair, but was alarmed when she heard a loud crash coming from the staircase. Rushing out onto the first floor landing, Rebecca saw Max laying unconscious on the ground downstairs. His scooter lay near him, as did hundreds of pieces of shattered shards of glass. The crystal chandelier, which was normally hanging near the staircase and banister, lay on the floor. Its chain appeared to have snapped off as the light fitting was pulled forcefully out of the ceiling. A panicked Rebecca screamed for her sister, who ran to the staircase. Rebecca started performing CPR on Max while Zena called 911, telling the operator in garbled tones that Max had fallen down the stairs and wasn't breathing. Rebecca called Jonah, who was still at the gym, but all he could hear was shouts and yelling in the background. Jonah raced home. When he entered the house, he saw paramedics working on his son, who lay unresponsive at the bottom of the stairs, blood pulling on the carpet underneath him. Thankfully, Max had no broken bones, but he was rushed to Rady Children's Hospital. Just like everyone else, Rebecca was in a total state of disbelief and fear. Neither she nor Zena had witnessed the accident and had no idea how it had occurred. She was terrified of how Max's mother would react in potentially holding her responsible, telling Zena, quote, Dina is going to kill me. From what could be gathered from the scene, Max had been riding around on his scooter on the landing at the top of the stairs. Somehow, he tripped and fallen headfirst down or over the banister, grabbing onto the chandelier as he did so in an effort to break his fall. Unfortunately, Max's weight simply pulled the light fitting down with him. He landed on the carpeted floor headfirst, sustaining injuries to his facial bones and spinal cord which in turn impacted his breathing and heart rate. Immediately after Max was whisked away to the hospital, Coronado Police Department was alerted and attended the residence. They took photos of the scene of the incident and opened an investigation. Police observed gouge marks at the top of the white-painted banister, like something heavy had run over it and chipped the paint. Photos of Max's scooter showed that the paint from the banister had transferred to the front wheel indicating the two surfaces may have done some sort of forceful contact. The news spread quickly throughout the Shackney and Zahao families around the country, as well as Dina's family, whose twin sister Nina flew in from San Francisco to provide comfort. The two parents kept a vigil by Max's bedside, hoping and praying that he would make a full recovery. The nightmare they had so suddenly been thrown into 
would end. Max was placed in a medically induced coma to allow doctors to stabilize and monitor him. Jonah told Rebecca he thought it would be better if she didn't come to the hospital. After all, someone needed to hold down the fort at home. Amongst the many relatives who called to check on the situation was Jonah's younger brother, Adam. The brothers were said to get along well, with Jonah describing his brother to ABC News as, quote, a nice guy. The 47-year-old called Rebecca from the home he shared with his long-term girlfriend in Memphis, Tennessee, asking if she thought it would help if he flew over to provide moral support. Rebecca and Adam didn't know each other well, but were both extremely worried about Max's prognosis. Rebecca told Adam to follow his heart about making his decision. He booked a flight. Jonah returned home just before 2 a.m. to shower and change. He planned to spend the night at a nearby Ronald McDonald house, but ended up staying in a hotel. Hours later, on July 12th, Jonah and Dina remained at the hospital as Max clung to life. Rebecca was busy tending to the household logistics. She dropped Zena off at the airport to catch a flight home to Missouri, and then picked up Adam when he arrived. That evening, Jonah, Rebecca, and Adam had dinner, but the mood was tense. Everyone was understandably incredibly anxious about what the coming days and weeks may bring for Max and the family. After dinner, Jonah returned to the hospital. Rebecca and Adam returned to the mansion where Adam would be staying in the guest house. Rebecca was still devastated about the accident, but was calm. Her sister Mary and brother-in-law Doug told Obscura that Adam later said he offered Rebecca an ambient that night to help her get some rest, but she declined. According to Town & Country magazine, Adam then told Rebecca that if she wanted to talk, he was available. The pair bid goodnight, and Rebecca went inside the main residence. Adam retired to the guest house where he took an ambient and went to bed around 8 p.m., Rebecca had been in constant contact with her family since the accident, especially her sister Mary, letting them know of any developments. That evening before Rebecca went to bed, she told Mary that the next day she planned to visit the hospital to take Jonah some more clothes and food. She also said she'd call their mother as she was on her way to the hospital and would stay in touch with Mary to let her know how things were going. Rebecca was extremely worried about Max, but didn't say anything indicating to Mary that she felt overwhelmed with guilt or suicidal. The last text message Rebecca sent to Mary that evening spoke of Rebecca's resolve to be there for Jonah and Max, saying, quote, It's a nightmare, and partially is hard for me, because I love him like my own. But he is not, and I need to be strong for Jonah. Jonah later told police that he tried calling Rebecca later that night, but there was no answer. He wasn't too worried. It had been an extremely stressful day for everyone involved, and Rebecca was probably asleep, exhausted. Jonah was sure he'd make contact with her the next morning. On the morning of July 13th, Adam Shagnai awoke in the Spreckles guest house, deciding that before he did anything else, he needed coffee. After briefly watching some porn on his phone and masturbating, Adam took a shower. Around 6.45 a.m., 
He made his way across the grass courtyard to the main residence. Adam claimed that before he could reach the main door, he spotted something hanging off a balcony attached to an upstairs bedroom of the house. It was the naked body of Rebecca, hanging by a rope. Her hands and feet were bound, and a piece of fabric was wrapped around her neck and stuffed into her mouth as a gag. Adam frantically dialed 911. Emergency, what are you reporting? Yeah, uh, I, I got a girl hung herself in the guest house of, uh, it's on Ocean Boulevard across from the hotel, same place that you came and got the kid yesterday. Okay, so what is the address? I'm not sure, uh, 19, I'm in the back house, is 1928 something. Uh, I'm not sure. Let me call you back. Okay, sir, is she yeah. still alive? I don't know. There was a long pause with muffled background noise, and Adam, breathing heavily, he grabbed a knife from the kitchen and ran back to Rebecca, pulling a small wooden outdoor table over to her body. Adam climbed on top of the table and cut Rebecca down before he started performing CPR on her as she lay on the grass, but the operator couldn't tell from all the noise whether Adam was still on the line. Sir, are you there? take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. 
It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventure, and the challenges she overcame. The book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Personally, I love my life in a book. I tried it with my mom, and I've heard stories I'd never heard before because, you know, they just never came up naturally in conversation. It's easy to use, and my favorite part is it's given me more of an excuse to talk to my mom more. You know, it's not always easy to come up with those on your own. Listener, check out mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA for 10% off today. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. Their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step -step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash obscura. Listener, did you know that 30 million women are impacted by weakened or thinning hair? If you're among them, know you're not alone. 
and that there's a solution you can trust to deliver results. Thousands of women have taken back control of their hair with Nutrafol. With many users raving that the supplement not only transformed their hair, but restored their confidence too. Nutrafol offers two targeted formulas for women that are clinically shown to improve hair growth and thickness with less shedding. Through all stages of life, healthier hair growth takes time. You'll begin to experience thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair in three to six months. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after six months. More than 1,500 top doctors recommend Nutrafol as an effective and high-quality solution for healthier hair. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and using promo code Obscura. And new customers will get 20% off. This is their best offer available anywhere. Plus, free shipping on every order. Get 20% off at Nutrafol.com. Spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com. Promo code Obscura. Listener, one of my favorite guilty pleasures is watching bad and cheesy horror movies. There's just something fun about picking them apart. But you know what I feel exactly zero guilt about? How much I love playing Best Fiends. Our friends over at Best Fiends have been generous enough to support our show on and off for some time now. And I have to say, the game is addictive in the best way. It's a great way to de-stress between recording sessions. I really like the presentation and cartoony characters. My girlfriend has a great time playing it too. Best Fiends is boredom's worst nightmare. With Best Fiends, there's something new today and tomorrow. And every day after that, literally thousands of levels to play and counting, plus tons of cute characters to collect. So if you never get tired of solving puzzles, good news. With Best Fiends, the fun never ends. Just don't blame me if you become slightly obsessed. Download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. You know what's not fair? The fact that Netflix hides thousands of shows from you based on your location and then has the nerve to increase their prices on you. That's right. Starting at the end of this month, they're raising prices once again. Now, you could just cancel your subscription and protest, or you could be smart about it. Make sure you're getting your full money's worth by using ExpressVPN like I do. See, you might not know that what's on Netflix in your country is completely different from what someone in the UK or Japan has on theirs. Using ExpressVPN, I can control which country I want Netflix to think I'm in. ExpressVPN has over 90 countries to choose from, so every time I run out of stuff to watch, I just switch to another country to unlock new shows. I actually rewatched Wild at Heart recently. It's not on US Netflix, but with just one tap of a button, ExpressVPN lets me change my location to the UK to watch it. Here's the best part. It's not just for Netflix. You can use ExpressVPN to unlock shows on other streaming services, too. I like to use it to watch BBC iPlayer. It's free and only available in the UK. ExpressVPN is also super fast and works on your phone, laptop, even smart TVs. So you can watch your shows on the big screen with zero buffering. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. 
Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash obscura. Don't forget to use my link so you can get three extra months free. That's expressvpn.com slash obscura. Expressvpn.com slash obscura to learn more. Listener, this year, we're all looking forward to a fresh start. Great way to start fresh is with some self-care and fresh scents from Native. Native aluminum-free deodorant is a great addition to your 2021 routine. Native cares about what you put on your armpits. That's why their deodorant's ingredients list includes things you've actually heard of, like coconut oil and shea butter. Another plus? None of their products are tested on animals, and almost everything is vegan. Switching to Native from an antiperspirant doesn't mean you'll have to worry about that midday BO either. Native will have you walking around smelling like coconut and vanilla, citrus and herbal musk, or maybe even lavender and rose. You can choose from over 10 cents, including their classics and rotating seasonals, so you're guaranteed to find one you love. Native Deodorant has over 16,000 five-star reviews and has been featured in the Today Show for a reason. It works. Make the switch to Native today by going to nativedo.com obscura or use promo code OBSCURA at checkout and get 20% off your first order. That's nativedeo.com slash obscura, or use promo code OBSCURA at checkout for 20% off your first order. Adam went on to tell the operator that he'd cut Rebecca down from the balcony. When first responders arrived, they found Rebecca's naked body lying in the courtyard. With the knife Adam had used to cut her down, also on the grass nearby. He'd removed the gag from Rebecca's mouth, which was a blue long sleeve t-shirt, but her wrists and ankles were still bound, her hands tied behind her back. The knot securing the ropes didn't appear rudimentary by any means. On the contrary, they seemed to be quite a complex configuration. By now, Adam had texted Jonah, telling him to call urgently. Adam broke the gut-wrenching news to his brother, and it appeared that Rebecca taken her own life. Jonah's world went further into a tailspin. This just didn't make sense. How would something like this have happened? As more police arrived to examine the crime scene, it was noted that the three separate lengths of rope tied around Rebecca had been cut from the same rope. It was red polypropylene, similar to a water skiing tow rope police initially believed may have come from the garage of the main residence. Two of the rope lengths had been used to bind Rebecca's ankles and wrists. The other length had been draped around her neck as a noose, with the one secured to the foot of the cast iron bed in the upstairs guest bedroom where Rebecca had kept her art supplies. It was noted that when the noose had been placed around Rebecca's neck, it covered her long black hair. Outside the bedroom door, a towel had been dropped and four drops of dried blood were found nearby. Inside the bedroom, on the floor at the foot of the bed, police found two knives. One was a steak knife with a four-and-a-half-inch blade, and the other a larger carving knife with an eight-inch blade. The steak knife had what appeared to be blood on the handle. Also on the floor was a large plastic bag, a dryer sheet, a plastic dog toy, and two small artist paintbrushes. The bristles of the larger brush were covered in black paint. 
Underneath the plastic bag was a tube of black craft paint. The head of the bed had been pulled away from the wall, presumably when the force of Rebecca's weight pulled down the rope tied around the foot of the bed. On a shelf in the bedroom was a book entitled Buckland's Complete Book of Witchcraft. Diagrams inside the book depict visual instructions on how to bind someone's hands behind their backs with a rope, which is then secured around the neck. It bore a striking similarity to how Rebecca had been bound before she died, especially the explicit mention of a red rope. Looking out the balcony doors into the courtyard, the left-hand door was open, but the right was closed. Near the doors, the desk chair had been knocked over on the floor. On the balcony itself were numerous foot impressions in the dirt, which coated the tiles. Someone had stood on the balcony in bare feet, with their feet close together, facing towards the courtyard. Closer to the cast iron railing were bare toe impressions, as if someone had leaned over the railing. An unidentified boot print was also found, but this mystery print was quickly cleared up. The boot print belonged to a Coronado PD officer as he canvassed the scene, but the barefoot impressions all appeared to match the dimensions of Rebecca's bare feet were positioned as if her ankles had been bound together. A section of dust measuring approximately 17 inches across, the same width as Rebecca's torso, on the top of the balcony railing had been disturbed. The railing itself was around 40 inches high, so it wasn't exceptionally low. Someone who was restrained would have had difficulty maneuvering themselves over it. One of the most disturbing pieces of evidence was found on the door of the same guest bedroom. Someone had crudely daubed a message in black paint saying, quote, She saved him. Can you save her? The message was cryptic and very troubling. Was it a question? A statement? Who painted it? If it was Rebecca, why did she refer to herself in the third person? Who were the he and she referred to in the message? Other items of interest found during the search of the mansion included a black latex glove scarred on the dirt floor of a crawl space at the bottom of the staircase leading to the basement of the main residence and a pair of gardening gloves on the coffee table inside the main house. An explanation for the location of these items would remain unknown. Bizarrely, the clothes that Rebecca had last been seen wearing the night before she died were never found. Jonah contacted Rebecca's brother-in-law, Doug, who had to make the heartbreaking call to Rebecca's sister, Mary. The Zahows were in a complete state of disbelief. Was this some sort of sick joke? They were yet to have received a call from anyone in law enforcement. Yet Rebecca's death had already hit the TV news. As Mary grappled to come to terms with what had happened, she couldn't believe that the explicit details around Rebecca's death were being broadcast nationally, while the people closest to Rebecca were yet to receive formal notification. Coronado PD immediately requested the assistance of the San Diego Sheriff's Office to investigate what had happened to both Rebecca and Max. That same day, Adam was interviewed by police and took a polygraph exam. He didn't pass the test, but he didn't fail either. The result was inconclusive. According to the book, Fatal Friends, Deadly Neighbors, by the late author Anne Rule, 
Adam provided investigators with his fingerprints, mouth swaps, fingernail scrapings, and had hair samples. By this stage, the Zahaus had arrived in California and were themselves being interviewed by law enforcement. Mary told Obscura that instead of the sympathetic response the family expected, the nature of questioning by police made the Zahaus feel like they themselves were suspects. Detectives implied that the family didn't really know Rebecca at all, insensitively insisting to her grieving relatives that it was entirely possible she'd taken her own life. Rebecca's family was adamant that she'd been murdered. She had no mental health issues and wasn't depressed. She didn't use recreational drugs or abuse prescription medication. She was so health conscious, she didn't even drink alcohol or smoke. Police felt that it was reasonable for someone of Rebecca's height to have painted the message herself, but her family rejected the suggestion. Not only did the block print not resemble Rebecca's handwriting, but the phrasing wasn't consistent with the way Rebecca used to articulate herself in written communication with others. Her ex-husband, Neil, agreed. Upon reviewing the internet search history on Rebecca and Jonah's computers, which were in the bedroom, Police found nothing to indicate what had happened to Rebecca or why. Police had access to Rebecca's phone three days after she died, manually checked her text messages. Rebecca's records revealed that on 9.40 p.m. on July 12th, she received a text from Dina's sister, Nina, asking if she could stop by to speak with Rebecca about Max's accident. But Rebecca didn't reply. As investigators trolled Rebecca's phone, it wasn't only text messages that caught their interest. In the phone's notes app, Rebecca had jotted down personal thoughts in the months before her death like, quote, Am I just too much of a coward to face the truth that I'm settling for the hope of a few happy years, which may never even come? Am I pretending that I will be content without ever having a child? And it is my own fault. I have allowed myself to be completely cut off from my own life. My life does not exist. In the weeks before Rebecca's death, she made other diarized notes saying, quote, These will never come true as long as I am with him. Being talked to like I am a worthless person by kids who are spoiled. No amount of money is worth what I am going through. If I am not thinking, I am crying. This was utterly perplexing. Sure, Rebecca had her difficulties with Dina and Jonah's eldest daughter, but it wasn't anything out of the ordinary, considering the nature of the blended family, and it wasn't a suicide note. Nina told police she visited the mansion around 10 p.m. that evening, after Rebecca failed to reply to her text message. Nina explained that she went to the front door and knocked, but no one answered. She walked down to the driveway where Rebecca's car was parked and noticed a light on in the bedroom on the second floor of the main house. Thinking better of it, Nina left without speaking to Rebecca or anyone else or entering the property. According to Rebecca's autopsy, there were no signs of drugs or alcohol in her system. However, Mary and Doug told Obscura that Rebecca wasn't tested for Ambien which Adam told police he'd offered her the night before. Police had appeared to simply take Adam's word for it that Rebecca hadn't taken the pill. 
Rebecca was estimated to have died around 3 a.m., several hours before Adam's 911 call. Smears of black paint were found on Rebecca's neck, the back of her right hand, index finger, nipples, and on the small of her back. The smear on her back had been transferred from the paint on the back of her hand when her hands were placed behind her back, yet there was none on her fingertips. Curiously, there was no paint on the rope, which would have been expected given the paint on the back of her hand. Underneath Rebecca's scalp, toward the front right side of her head, there was evidence of four separate but similar hemorrhaging injuries, which appeared as bruises on the skin. The cause of these injuries wasn't apparent, but investigators suggested these could have come from Rebecca making impact with branches and plant matter underneath a balcony when she fell, despite blows to the head potentially resulting in similar injuries. The medical examiner concluded that Rebecca was not in a vertical position when she went off the balcony and therefore may have struck it with her head. Rebecca's forehead also bore thin, linear abrasions from one to two inches long, like scratches. Her feet were filthy with dirt, which was consistent with having stood on the balcony where her footprints were found. Male DNA was also found on Rebecca, but the exact source remained unidentified. According to the book, Fatal Friends, Deadly Neighbors, the length of the rope around Rebecca's wrists was 84 inches long, had been wound five times around her right wrist and six times around her left, like a figure eight. Surprisingly, the wrist bindings weren't tight at all. In fact, they were loose enough that they could be slid off Rebecca's wrists at her autopsy. Several scratches were evident on the back of her right hand, and her back bore a number of small cuts, abrasions, and bruises. Again, it was suggested that more major injuries could have resulted from Rebecca's body making contact with foliage underneath the balcony. Small patches of what appeared to be sticky residue from the tape were found on Rebecca's mid-left shin and right lower leg, but as they were only an inch across, it wasn't clear whether Rebecca's legs had been bound at some stage. Blood found on Rebecca's inner thighs was believed to be menstrual blood. The medical examiner claimed that there was no sign of genital trauma, noted that Rebecca's IUD was still in place internally. Unfortunately for Rebecca's devastated family and Jonah, not every finding could be explained, according to the medical examiner. For the Zahal family, the autopsy raised more questions than it provided answers. Things went from bad to worse. Sadly, Max did not recover from his brain damage, which had been caused by a lack of oxygen, and he died on July 16th. His autopsy detailed how the blunt force trauma to his head and neck resulted in a contusion of his cervical spinal cord that affected his heart rate and breathing. Max's frontal impact with the floor had moved his head backwards, hyperextending his neck. This in turn caused a skull fracture, abrasions, and contusions. More pattern abrasions on Max's back appeared to correspond to bumps down the middle. Despite Jonah and Dina's deep pain and suffering, they decided to donate their son's organs so Max could still help others beyond his death. In the days following, 
the Shacknai family released a statement. Quote, Despite heroic efforts on the part of the paramedics and hospital staff, he was unable to recover from the injuries suffered. His loving, kind, and vibrant spirit will forever be in our hearts and those whom he touched every day. Lost to our families, Max's many friends of all ages and teammates, and the community is immeasurable. The highly unusual circumstances around Rebecca and Max's death immediately drew international media attention and a high degree of speculation to the mysterious circumstances of the case. The interest was so intense that Jonah engaged a public relations firm to handle the incoming media inquiry. The interest was so intense that Jonah engaged a public relations firm to handle all incoming media inquiries and interview requests. Max was buried on July 20th in Scottsdale, Arizona, wearing his favorite soccer uniform. Meanwhile, the Coronado PD and San Diego Sheriff's Department continued their inquiries into Rebecca's death. A neighbor reported that late on the night Rebecca died. She heard what sounded like teenagers whooping and hollering down at the beach, the sound carrying up towards Ocean Boulevard. The neighbor said that, at one stage, it sounded like loud music was coming from the Spreckles mansion, but the neighbor also reported that around 11.40 p.m., she heard a woman screaming and calling for help. She felt disturbance was definitely coming from the same house. Another witness told police that late on the evening of July 12th, he saw a woman approaching the front door of the mansion. He claimed the woman strongly resembled Jonah's ex-wife, Dina, whose whereabouts on the night Rebecca died were as yet unconfirmed. Was it possible someone had gained access to the property? There were no signs of forced entry, and the family knew that the mansion's rear door was always unlocked. Throughout Rebecca's relationship with Jonah, she maintained contact with her ex-husband by text message. But Neil had an alibi. And law enforcement concluded that it was extremely unlikely he had arranged for anyone to harm Rebecca, excluding him as a person of interest. Investigators continued to collect evidence and statements, but some things couldn't be explained. The roll of tape that was believed to have left residue on Rebecca's legs was never found. Adam claimed he'd cut Rebecca down from the balcony with a kitchen knife that he dropped on the grass in the courtyard afterwards. Yet none of Adam's DNA was found on the knife, nor on the sleeve of the t-shirt he claimed he removed from Rebecca's mouth. In fact, neither Adam's DNA nor his fingerprints were found anywhere on the property, which was highly unusual. How do prints and DNA just disappear? The lack of fingerprint evidence was starting to seem as though certain items had been wiped clean to indicate anyone had been present except Rebecca. This included the tube of black paint, which had been used to paint the message on the door. There were no fingerprints on the tube, only Rebecca's thumbprint on the cap. This was odd, as the tube would have been needed to have been squeezed numerous times in order to extract sufficient paint to daub the message on the door. Whoever had painted the message would have left their fingerprints all over the tube. There were no fingerprints or DNA from anyone else on the paintbrush either. No human DNA was found on either of the balcony's doors. The only fingerprints on the balcony doors were Rebecca's. With the exception of one partial print, police excluded both Adam and Dina 
as the owner of the print, but couldn't exclude Rebecca. Her fingerprints were found on the leg at the foot of the bed, where the rope had been tied, as well as the door jam six inches from the door. Every side of the handle of the steak knife found on the bedroom floor was smeared with Rebecca's menstrual blood. Even though there had been no sign of genital trauma noted at her autopsy, the state of the knife handle certainly seemed to indicate that a sexual assault had occurred. A drop of Rebecca's menstrual blood was also found on the shower floor. Investigators at the sheriff's office stated that there was an insufficient amount of DNA found on the handles of the carving knife or steak knife that were suitable for analysis. The only fingerprints on either of the knives were Rebecca's prints found on the blade of the carving knife. The pattern of the prints was as if she'd held the knife behind her back by the top part of the blade, with the sharp edge facing away from her. But no formal explanation was offered by law enforcement as to exactly how Rebecca's fingerprints came to be on the blade, nor how her prints were the only ones found. Adam and Dina were excluded as 10 of the 11 sources of DNA found in the rope that bound Rebecca's wrist together. Disappointingly, results of DNA testing on the black latex glove and gardening gloves were said to be inconclusive in terms of being able to identify whose DNA had been left behind. The dryer sheet, along with various items from the guest house, weren't subjected to any forensic testing. On July 23rd, a memorial service was held for Rebecca in St. Joseph, Missouri. Her family released a statement in conjunction with the service, saying, quote, There are no words in any dictionary or language to describe the full beauty, love, compassion, selflessness, generosity, and kindness of Rebecca. If you had Rebecca, you could not help but love her. Rebecca often anticipated the needs of family, friends, and co-workers. She offered her help and would be by their side before someone even thought of asking. Rebecca always found ways to touch everyone's life. Rebecca lived a life in motion and was full of energy. She focused on wellness in both body and spirit. She loved to take on the most challenging workout regimens, such as hiking the Grand Canyon Rebecca was very intelligent and achieved anything she set her mind on. Rebecca valued her life and lived her life to its fullest. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Rebecca loved God, her family, and lived a life that was family-centric. Although there was a geographic distance between us, 
Rebecca always made us feel she was right here with us. She honored us. She honored and admired her parents. She was a role model to her younger siblings. She adored her nephew and niece. Rebecca was taken from us far too soon. It is hard to accept that she will not be a part of our lives as her younger brother and sister get married. Her nephew and niece graduate from high school and the other many family milestones ahead of us. We love you so much, Rebecca. Your smile, your joy, your liveliness, your eagerness, your creativity, your love, and your strength will be in our hearts forever. Every sunrise, every sunset, the beauty of every season will remind us of you and your beauty. Now you are in heaven with your Lord among the beautiful, the glorious, and among the angels where you belong. You look down upon us with your smile as beautiful as always, and say, I am with my Lord where there is no pain, no fear, no more sadness, nor crying. And where there is no more death, our thoughts and prayers go out to Jonah and the Shacknai family on the loss of their son Max. We know he was a special child who will be missed. We appreciate the continuous outpouring of condolences from families, friends, and people in various parts of the nation all over the world. This reflects on who Rebecca was. Her legacy will continue to live in our hearts. Three days later, on July 26th, investigators formally announced that the manner of Max's death was accidental. The injuries he'd sustained on his back were consistent with abrasions, as if he'd been pushed back against the banister, but no physical evidence at the scene or the nature of Max's injuries indicated a struggle. Law enforcement found that Max had tripped, taken a tumble over the banister from the second floor, and grabbed at the glass chandelier as he fell, landing on the floor below, with a light fitting coming down on top of him. Mary told Obscura that throughout the process, Rebecca's family bore the responsibility of seeking updates from law enforcement about the progress of the investigation. The Zahows hoped that the reason investigators hadn't been in contact and appeared to be withholding information was because they were busy identifying a potential suspect and making inquiries that would lead to an arrest. But Mary told Obscura that it took her making continual phone calls to the sheriff's office for them to finally agree to forensically analyze the phone contents in full. 42 days after Rebecca's death, police executed search warrants to analyze the phone, as well as those owned by Jonah and Dina. Rebecca's phone records themselves unfortunately didn't indicate who had left the voicemail that was said to have come at 12.50 a.m., However, Mary later stated that police told her Jonah had left the voicemail, supposedly telling Rebecca that Max's condition was deteriorating. But this, too, seemed unusual. Everyone involved understood that on the evening of July 12th, Max was stable, not necessarily at death's door. Another frustrating setback for the family By the time police had analyzed the phone and found there was a deleted voicemail, the window had passed for them to be able to retrieve and download it. Law enforcement was unable to explain to Mary why they didn't fully analyze the phone immediately following Rebecca's death. 
On August 31st, Rebecca's family were finally informed of the investigation's findings. On September 2nd, the San Diego County Sheriff's Department publicly announced that, after considering the available evidence, investigators concluded that Rebecca had committed suicide. They determined that after Rebecca listened to the voicemail from Jonah about Max's condition, she became overwhelmed with guilt and was distraught. After fetching the rope most likely from the garage, they claimed Rebecca undressed, painted the message on the bedroom door, and cut the rope into sections. They claimed she then secured one end to the bed, bound her ankles, placed the rope and t-shirt around her neck, bound her wrist behind her back, shuffled out to the balcony, leaned over head first, and fell to her death. Part of what led police to the finding was their own video reenactment of a female officer, which attempted to prove that Rebecca could have bound her own hands behind her back and then taking her own life. In the video, the officer wrapped a rope around her wrists in front of her using a figure eight pattern found at the scene. She then slipped one hand out of the bindings, placed her hands behind her back, and slipped her free hand back into the loops tightening them with the end of the rope. For the Zahal family, this was less than satisfactory to say the least. The explanation for the injuries to Rebecca's scalp didn't make sense. The knots that had been used in the reenactment weren't even the same ones that had bound Rebecca. There was no evidence that Rebecca had been as distressed that night as police claimed she was. Immediately before, she supposedly took her life. Following the announcement by the sheriff's office, Jonah released a statement saying, quote, This is a very sad day for our family, as we are again reminded of the enormity of these tragedies. We would like to thank the San Diego County Sheriff's Department, the Coronado Police Department, and the San Diego County Medical Examiner for their professionalism and dedication in investigating and explaining these terrible events. We would also like to extend our gratitude to the first responders and the medical teams at Rady Children's Hospital, who worked tirelessly to try to save Max's life, and to all our family, friends, and colleagues for their continued sympathy and support throughout this unimaginable process. While the investigation is over, the emptiness and sadness in our hearts will remain forever. Max was an extraordinarily loving, happy, talented and special little boy. He brought joy to everyone who knew him, and we will miss him desperately. Rebecca, too, was a wonderful and unique person who always have a special place in my heart. Nothing will ever be the same for our families after these losses. But with today's information providing some much-needed answers, we will try to rebuild our lives and honor the memories we carry with us. Thank you for respecting our privacy as we struggle forward. But needless to say, the Zahao family was devastated. There was no way Rebecca could have taken her own life based on how well they knew her. Everything about her personal values, behavior, and state of mind during the period of time between Max's accident and her death flew in the face of such a suggestion. Growing up with a strong Christian faith, Suicide was simply not something Rebecca believed in. She'd also made plans for the following day 
which wasn't behavior consistent with someone considering taking their own life. Like Rebecca's devastated family, Jonah too was seeking answers. In mid-September, he wrote to then-California attorney General Kamala Harris seeking her assistance. Jonah requested the investigation into Rebecca's death be reviewed, saying he hoped this would bring the Zahao family confidence, comfort, and resolution. Later that month, Rebecca's family made a TV appearance, continuing to push for the Attorney General's office to conduct an independent investigation. Extremely dissatisfied with the conclusion of the Sheriff's office that Rebecca had taken her own life, in October 2011, the Zahao family requested her body be exhumed. Second autopsy was performed by high-profile pathologist Dr. Cyril Wecht, to the surprise of both the Zahaos and the veteran's forensic expert, both Rebecca's brain and throat were missing. Despite this, and Mary not receiving an explanation to why these had been retained, Dr. Wecht's findings raised questions over the original investigation. The second autopsy found evidence of injuries to Rebecca's neck. Her hyoid bone, which is situated towards the center of the front of the neck, was fractured, as was Rebecca's cricoid cartilage, which surrounds the trachea. Fractures of both of these structures, as well as the minor hemorrhaging sustained, occurred during manual strangulation. There were more anomalies. The drop from the balcony was 9 feet. Rebecca was only 5 foot 4 inches tall and weighed 100 pounds. Bed hadn't been pulled a great distance away from the wall, only a matter of inches. Given the distance Rebecca had to have fallen from the balcony, if she jumped, she would have been partially decapitated. The bed would have moved a lot further away from the wall. At the very least, her cervical vertebrae would have been fractured or dislocated. There would have been some significant degree of hemorrhaging or tearing the muscle tissue expected but none of these injuries were present. Something else Dr. Wecht observed was the lividity or blood pooling in Rebecca's body. If Rebecca had taken her life hours before Adam had found her, the blood would have pooled in her lower extremities. Instead, it had pooled in her back, indicating she died shortly before being laid on the ground. The blunt force injuries to Rebecca's head were also a point of contention, Dr. Wecht found that these had been sustained immediately before Rebecca died were not simply a matter of having bumped her head in the hours or days before. It was doubtful that Rebecca sustained her scalp injuries from jumping over the balcony and hitting her head multiple times against something as she fell. Dr. Wecht concluded that Rebecca had died from asphyxiation due to hanging and her manner of death was not suicide, undetermined. The nature of the binding around Rebecca's wrist and ankles were also problematic. The multiple loops in the figure eight pattern weren't what would be expected if someone had crudely restrained themselves before taking their own life. The knots were more elaborate, like those used by people familiar with nautical activities. The fact that Adam worked as a tugboat captain and intimate knowledge of these types of knots was very concerning, even if it was purely circumstantial. The Zahao family simply didn't believe that it would have been possible for Rebecca to tie such knots herself. Even if she did want to take her own life, why would she have restrained herself anyway? The theory was put forward that people 
sometimes restrain themselves to avoid backing out at the last minute, but to do so would have been extremely out of character for Rebecca. And there was the matter of the other items found in the bedroom. Rebecca had handled the tube of paint and painted the message on the door. Why would she have put the paint on her breasts? How could no paint have ended up on the underside of her fingers or hands? Why were there none of her fingerprints on the paint tube, save for a single thumbprint on the cap? There was also the question of blood on Rebecca's inner thigh. Not only did it appear to have been left by contact with a blood-covered object, but the size of the smear was similar to the handle of the steak knife, which had been covered in Rebecca's menstrual blood. And what of the items that weren't tested, like the dryer sheet? This was found lying between the knives on the bedroom floor. Could someone have possibly used the sheet to wipe fingerprints from the other pieces of evidence? The other unsettling fact was that women who have long hair always pull it free of anything restricting it around their neck. It's an automatic reflex. But Rebecca hadn't done this at all. The noose had been placed over her neck, the t-shirt then wrapped around it, trapping her hair. That was if Rebecca had even placed these objects around her neck at all. So if Rebecca didn't take her own life, who had? Adam had originally told police that that morning he'd watch pornography, masturbated before having a shower, and headed over to the main house. When he found Rebecca, but according to Mary, Adam's phone wasn't seized by police to check any activity. And investigators didn't write a search warrant for his phone either. It was also strange that when Adam called 911, he hadn't referred to Rebecca by her name. They weren't complete strangers, so why had he done this? Before the end of 2011, Jonah had sold the stately home where he'd lost two of his loved ones in less than a week. The Spreckles mansion was sold for $9 million to a corporation in Utah. Following the sale, the property and grounds were partly renovated, with the pool being constructed in the courtyard. Rebecca's family weren't giving up. In January 2012, they wrote to the California Department of Justice, asking the Deputy Attorney General to reopen the investigation. Meanwhile, Max's mother, Dina, had hired her own private investigators to look further into Max's death. Dina didn't believe her son was skylarking on the staircase, as the medical examiner had originally claimed, simply wasn't a fearless risk-taker like some kids. Based on the height of both Max and the banister, the center of gravity was said to be too low to have been thrown forward and over if he came off his scooter. The second floor landing where Max was riding was also covered in heavy pile carpet, which would have had the effect of decelerating the scooter. One doctor who had examined Max before the young boy died also originally told police that he felt Max's injuries were caused by suffocation prior to his fall. The pathologist who re-examined Max's records formed the view that Max had been assaulted before he went over the banister. Then there was the matter of Max grabbing onto the chandelier to break his fall. If he'd clung on for dear life, there would have been cuts and abrasions on his hands from the cut crystal, but there was no evidence of these injuries to his hands at all. Dina later told the Dr. Phil show that she believed Rebecca, quote, had knowledge of, or was directly involved in, Max's death. And in June 2012, 
Tina requested that Coronado PD reopen Max's case, but neither the Zahau family nor Dina would get what they were looking for. In late 2012, authorities announced that they would not be reopening the investigations into either of the deaths. By this stage, Jonah had sold Medicis to another pharmaceutical company for $2.6 billion. Resigning from his position as CEO and chairman, in memory of his late son, he established a not-for-profit foundation called Max in Motion, designed to provide assistance to student-athletes for low-income backgrounds and those with disabilities. The Zahal family had been buoyed by the outcome of Dr. Weck's autopsy of Rebecca. They were frustrated at the brick walls they kept hitting with the sheriff's office. So in July 2013, the family launched a civil suit in San Diego Superior Court against Adam Shacknai for Rebecca's wrongful death. The suit also alleged that Dina and her sister Nina were involved. However, after CCTV evidence from Rady Children's Hospital came to light, it proved the sisters weren't at the mansion when Rebecca died. The Zahau family accordingly withdrew their claim against the sisters and issued an apology. That year, there was also more sadness. The family patriarch, Robert, passed away without any answers as to what had really happened to Rebecca. The civil case against Adam finally began in early 2018. When Dr. Weck testified about his findings at the second autopsy, he told the court that he was now convinced that Rebecca's manner of death was homicide. He explained that Rebecca had been knocked unconscious and manually strangled to death before her body was hung off the balcony and the scene staged to look like a suicide. He also noted that in his extensive expert experience, it was highly unusual for women to take their own lives while naked and in such a public manner. Whoever had killed Rebecca had staged such a scene to inflict a final humiliation. A handwriting expert gave evidence, stating that the blank letters of the message painted on the door was consistent with Adam's handwriting, not Rebecca's. Adam's defense team challenged the allegation by pointing out that none of his DNA, fingerprints, or shoe prints were found at the scene. The defense also noted that Rebecca's rape kit had returned negative results, claiming there was no evidence of vaginal trauma. Jonah appeared in court on behalf of his brother, testifying that he felt it was inconceivable that Adam was capable of murder. His brother had no history of violence. After hearing around six weeks of evidence, the jury retired to make their decision. On a balance of probabilities, Adam was found liable for Rebecca's death. The Zahau family had asked the jury to determine appropriate compensation for their loss, pain, and anguish, and was awarded $5 million. But it was a frustrating and bittersweet outcome. On one level, accountability had been formally apportioned, but still, no one was held criminally responsible. Outside court, Adam maintained his innocence, telling reporters, quote, I'm standing tall. I'm not worried about these posers. They got away with something once. They got lucky one time. I don't think they're going to get lucky again. A lot worse things have happened to a lot of better people, so this is nothing to me. I'm disappointed, but I got plenty of fight in me. 
His lawyer echoed his sentiments, labeling the decision a, quote, gross miscarriage of justice. Following the decision, Dina told Town & Country magazine that she no longer believed Rebecca was involved in Max's death, but she did believe their deaths were linked. Two weeks later, off the back of the verdict, the sheriff's office agreed to order a review of the original investigation. The case wasn't being reopened at this stage, but it was hoped that it would bring relevant evidence to light to support a reopening of the case. Rebecca's family asked for fingerprints and the unidentified male DNA found on Rebecca to be retested, as well as testing the handle of the steak knife for evidence of vaginal skin cells. But their hopes were to be crushed once again. December 2018, the sheriff's office announced that they had reaffirmed their conclusion that Rebecca had died by suicide, that there was no evidence she died at the hands of another person. That same month, Adam appealed the outcome of the civil suit in an attempt to set aside the verdict and have a new trial. According to the San Diego Union Tribune, the court denied this request as the house felt that the nature of the communication with the sheriff's office had been entirely one-sided. Mary told Obscura that the family felt that law enforcement had been openly communicated with the Shackknife family throughout while Rebecca's family had been largely left in the dark. Negotiations regarding payment of the settlement owed to Rebecca's family were ongoing. February 2019, Adam's insurance company agreed to settle with the Zahaus for approximately $600,000. This effectively wiped out the previous multi-million dollar judgment, meant that no further civil claims could be filed against Adam by Rebecca's family. There was now nothing for him to appeal. Since Jonah sold the Spreckles mansion, the home has been placed on the market several times. By mid-2012, the asking price had risen to $15.5 million. In early 2013, the price rose again as more repairs and improvements were made. In April 2019, the property was listed at $16.9 million. Jonah has since remarried but continues his work with Max in Motion. To date, no criminal charges have been laid against any person in connection with Rebecca's death. Despite the case being closed by authorities, Rebecca's family are still seeking answers. In July 2020, the family filed a civil suit against the San Diego County Sheriff's Office, requesting access to all records pertaining to the investigation into Rebecca's death. Mary told Obscura that the Sahaus have been provided with some information and that they were told that upon conclusion of the civil trial that they would be provided the full case file from the investigation. But to date, this hasn't happened. The records the Zahau family do have only appear to support the narrative by the sheriff's office that Rebecca took her own life. Despite their ongoing anguish, Rebecca's family continues to fight at considerable financial cost for her death to be independently reinvestigated, for the district attorney to agree to talk with them, and for the manner of Rebecca's death to be formally changed on official documents to homicide. The Zahau family are yet to receive any formal reasons from the district attorney explaining why an independent investigation 
The Zahao family are yet to receive any formal reasons from the district attorney, explaining why an independent investigation into Rebecca's death will not be conducted. Nor have the family received a response from the San Diego Sheriff's Office, explaining why some of Rebecca's organs were not returned following her first autopsy and their current whereabouts. This continues to be incredibly painful for the family, with Mary telling Obscura, quote, Even though I want to cherish the memories that we have, it's almost impossible and we still have to fight for it. I feel like there is no resting in peace for my sister because there is no justice. Mary is exceptionally grateful for the many messages of support she and the family continue to receive from around the country. Her hope is that more people contact the San Diego DA's office, pushing for a reinvestigation in consultation with Rebecca's family. The sooner the Zahows will have the answers they've been waiting years to receive. In their quest to put the full facts of Rebecca's case into the public domain, her family have recently become involved with a true crime app called Crime Door. Crime Door uses immersive augmented reality to take you into high-profile crime scenes firsthand. Case resources, including articles, documents, photos, audio, and video, provide additional details for users to experience the power of reconstructed crime scenes. The Zao family receive a portion of the $1.99 it costs for app users to enter the door for Rebecca's case. This money goes directly to assisting with ongoing legal costs. If you would like to contact the office of San Diego District Attorney Summer Stephen to request the department reopen the investigation into Rebecca's death, or if you are interested in learning how to support the Zahao family via the Crime Door app in their Facebook page seeking justice for Rebecca, please see our show notes for further details. We were deeply honored to speak with Mary Zahao Loner and her husband Doug in the process of conducting our research, and are incredibly grateful to them for sharing their time with us, as well as their memories of Rebecca. For our Patreon listeners, our full interview with Mary and Doug will be released soon as an exclusive bonus. To hear the interview, head on over and sign up to our Patreon page via the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.